Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. So, um, yeah, I am, uh, as Niall was saying, I'm a psychologist, uh, so I'm also a scientist. And in some ways, I'm quite a conventional psychologist. As Niall was saying, I'm a member of the BPS. I'm actually the chair of the transpersonal psychology section of the BPS. Uh, and I do uh, conventional research, uh, publish in academic journals and, and so forth. But I guess in, in some ways, I'm not really a conventional psychologist or a conventional scientist because I don't subscribe to the, the standard, what you could call the standard scientific model of reality or the, or the model of reality which is associated with science and which maybe most scientists subscribe to. Uh, just to give you an example, a few months ago I was at a, um, a mainstream psychology conference in Nottingham and I was having lunch with a couple of other psychologists. Uh, we were just chatting away like psychologists do about psychological things. <laughs> and uh, and uh, one of the, we were talking about religion and one of the psychologists said, isn't it amazing that there are still some people who believe in life after death? <laughs> and, and I said, well... I was feeling in a, a bit of a provocative mood. So I said to him, well, actually, I don't think we can say for definite that there is no life after death. I, I for one, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that there may be some form of life after death. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They stopped eating and their eyes, you know, they were very shocked. And then I said to be even more provocative, I said, I'm also open to the existence of um, some paranormal phenomena like telepathy, precognition. I think there's you know, some very significant evidence for things like precognition and telepathy. And they were even more startled. And I think they, no, I was going to say they picked up their lunch and walked away to another table, but they didn't. They were, <laughs> they were very polite. But uh, that kind of illustrates the, the fact that, you know, in, in academia, uh, and this applies to my, my colleagues at university as well, most of my colleagues at university, it's kind of taken for granted that there are really just two choices there's a choice between rational science or the standard scientific model of reality or religion. You have one choice or the other. There's no alternative. So you either believe in life after death and you're religious or you don't believe in life after death because you're a skeptical scientist. Uh, maybe the same applies to evolution. Either you're a creationist and you believe that God created the world and God created living things or you're a neo-Darwinist. There are the only two options. But I think there's actually another option. I think there is a third alternative to the standard scientific model and the religious model. And that's what I refer to as spiritual science. And it's a science which is grounded in spiritual principles or grounded in one particular spiritual principle. And the reason why I think this is um, necessary is because I don't think the standard scientific model can actually explain the world. I'm going to go into that in more detail today. I think it's becoming more and more evident, and I think more and more scientists are beginning to realise this, that there are certain elements of reality 
and of human behaviour, which are not explicable in terms of the standard model of materialist science. So I'm going to, today I'm going to present an alternative to the standard model of materialistic science, which I call spiritual science. And I'm going to look into two or maybe three, if we have time, two or three specific areas of science and also philosophy to show how the standard model has difficulties or cannot explain certain phenomena. But the, the model of spiritual science can explain these phenomena, or at least it can suggest a, a rational explanation to phenomena which the standard model struggles to explain. So I'm going to look into, in particular, I'm going to look into consciousness a bit later on, and also altruism. And if we have time, I'm going to look into uh, spiritual experiences. So we're going to look at those phenomena from the standard, in terms of the standard model, and then in terms of the, the spiritual science model. So I'm just be going to begin by um, going through some of the, the main elements of the standard scientific model, which is really materialism. And I think this, this model, I think it pervades, it's this kind of the standard secular model of reality in our culture. And I think it kind of pervades the atmosphere around us. Even if we're not aware of it, this model kind of lies in the background and it, it permeates academia and even the media, the kind of serious media. And I mean, I can remember actually, when I was 18, I, a friend said, there's a talk about meditation at the local library. Uh, do you want to come along? I said, okay, sounds interesting. I didn't know anything about meditation. So I went along to this talk at the local library and it was um, a talk about transcendental meditation, TM. And the teacher or the speaker was saying things like, um, meditation is a way of accessing the bliss of consciousness. Or he was saying that consciousness has a fundamental quality of bliss which you can gain access to in meditation. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, consciousness, bliss, natural quality of bliss, what does this mean? Because I remember thinking, I'm just a brain, I'm just a body and a brain. So where is consciousness? What is this thing called consciousness? And how can it possibly have a, a quality of bliss? So to me, that suggests that I was kind of, I'd kind of imbibed the, the materialist model through my education. And when meditation came along, it conflicted with that model. And a little later on, I did start to meditate, and I realized that consciousness did actually have a, a natural quality of, of well-being. And it was possible to tune into deeper aspects of your own consciousness. But this is the, maybe the fundamental tenet of the, the materialist model. Uh, is that matter, matter is the fundamental thing in the universe. Uh, physical stuff is the primary thing. And what we see is basically what there is. There are no higher dimensions, no different levels, no subtle energies, none of that new age nonsense. There's just physical stuff. Matter is a fundamental thing. And all phenomena can be explained in terms of the interactions of physical stuff. So the mind is a good example. In the materialist model, the mind is really just a, a product of the brain. It's a kind of shadow generated, thrown by the brain, cast by the brain. And so mental problems are basically brain problems. That's what you could call the standard medical model in psychiatry or psychology. The idea that mental issues or problems are basically physical in origin, though. They're caused by neurological imbalances, 
maybe a low level of serotonin, some form of chemical imbalance. imbalance. So essentially, they're physical problems. And you can use physical interventions to fix these problems. You can rebalance your serotonin levels. You can rebalance the, the chemicals in your brain. And then you can be happy again. Uh, but obviously, it's not as simple as that. It, in, in fact, it's not even certain that it works at all. You know, there's a lot of evidence. I think the evidence basis for antidepressants is surprisingly weak when you look into it. There's a lot of evidence that antidepressants work for serious cases, severe cases of depression, but not so much for mild cases. And the idea that depression is caused by a low level of serotonin is a bit of a myth. There's very little evidence for that either. But this really stems from the, the medical model of the brain. The, the essential idea that the mind is produced by the brain is really nothing more than brain activity. And from that point of view, there can't, obviously there can't be any, anything like life after death because when the brain stops functioning, when we die, the mind also stops functioning. So we lose our sense of identity, our consciousness stops, and that's the end, you know, just turn off the light switch and that's the end of our identity and the end of our existence. And moving into uh, the genetic area, a bit lower down, uh, wherever genes are. But human beings are meant to be, according to this model, genetic machines. This is what Richard Dawkins says. We're basically survival machines. And we're basically concerned with the, the survival and the replication of our genes. Nothing else really matters to us apart from that. So the main motivation of our behavior is selfish. We want survival, we want replication. Maybe we're nice to a few people around us who have similar genes to us. But essentially, we are only interested in our own survival, maybe the survival of our group as well. But there's an essential selfishness. And our behavior is also determined by our genes. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of human behavior is seen as an evolutionary adaptation um, caused by evolution, caused by natural selection. And this, this model also suggests that we are separate to one another. We are enclosed within our own minds and bodies, within our own skin, and we are separate to one another. There is a fundamental isolation, a fundamental separateness. You are all out there. I'm in here, enclosed within my brain and my skull, and I'm essentially separate to you. And, you know, we can communicate with each other. We can share our thoughts with each other. Or essentially, we are alone. And also, according to this model, obviously, psi phenomena like telepathy cannot exist because telepathy would involve some kind of shared information between our minds. But if our minds are just enclosed within our skulls and our bodies, then obviously, we can't share... Apart from verbally, we cannot detect each other's intentions or share information in a telepathic way. So these are some of the, um, the basic tenets of materialism. And I think our culture has adopted this model probably since the end of the, the 19th century. Uh, that was when following the publication of Darwin's work and people like T.H. Huxley were proponents of materialism. And once the influence of religion began to wane, people began to realize that this model could replace the religious model of reality. It was a new metaphysical or philosophical framework which could provide a narrative to make sense of the world. 
and to make sense of human beings. And, you know, in some ways, it's quite a, it's quite a coherent model. It makes sense. It provides, um, it has explanatory power. And I think that's one reason why it's appealing, because it has this simplicity and uh, explanatory power. But I think the influence of this model of reality in the background of our lives, the background of our culture, has been severely detrimental um, for two, maybe three reasons. One is that it, I think it's created a, a climate of meaninglessness and purposelessness. Um, the sense that life really has no meaning or purpose apart from survival. And we're just here for 70 or 80 years. We're just kicking around, trying to fill the time until we die, trying to reproduce and survive. And it doesn't really matter what we do. You know, there's really no point to it. We'll just have a good time. Just buy some luxury goods, buy the latest metallic fridge, and try and earn as much money as you can, and just try to enjoy it until you die, and then you're nothing forevermore. Uh, so it, I think there, there is this kind of nihilism in the background of our lives, of our culture, because of this model. And I think, in, in a way, you could say that philosophical materialism has led to materialism as a lifestyle, a lifestyle of consumerism. And that's because, as I said, you know, if there's really no point to our lives, we may as well just buy as many things as we can and try to become as rich as we can and try to become as powerful as we can and just, you know, generally try to distract ourselves and make the best of it. So I think materialism, consumerism, does come from this nihilistic model. And I think there's a general, in our culture, there's, you could say there's a general sense of disorientation, a general sense of anime or confusion, because we feel deep down that life may be purposeless. We may just be genetic machines, and there's really no point to our lives. So that's one problem. Another problem is the attitude to the environment that it creates. Because if we see other living beings as just genetic machines, biological machines, then they really have no value apart from a utilitarian one. Their value is, you know, what can we take from the natural world? We can use it as resources. We can exploit the environment to provide us with goods and resources. But otherwise, it really has no value. So I think this model has created a, a kind of exploitative attitude towards nature as well. But finally, I think that the biggest problem with this model, one of the biggest problems, is that it doesn't actually work very well. I think, as I said before, it's becoming more and more clear that as a model of explaining reality, it's no longer very successful. And I'm going to explain a bit about that in a moment. But I think one interesting thing about this model is that you could say that it's a, it's a kind of belief system. A lot of these tenets are actually just assumptions. Uh, they're not based on hard evidence. But I think a lot of people accept them as facts, even though they are just assumptions. And I became aware of this recently. Last, uh, a few months ago, last June, I think it was, I was invited to speak at a a scientific and music festival called the Blue Dot Festival, um, just outside Manchester, at Jodrell Bank. And it was great. You know, some, of my, some of my favorite bands were playing, and there were some interesting talks. But I went to a talk uh, by Richard Dawkins. Uh, it was a dialogue between Richard Dawkins and Jim Al-Khalili. And it was quite entertaining. 
But I became aware that there was a kind of, especially, especially with Richard Dawkins, there was a certain kind of dogma behind everything he was saying. At one point, towards the end, somebody asked a question and they said, um, Richard, don't you think you could say that, you know, religion provides one story about reality and science provides another story? Uh, so Richard Dawkins, he started to scowl and he said, bollocks. <laughs> and that was all he said. That was the entirety of his answer. So I thought that was quite an effective way of dealing with difficult questions. <laughs> I'll probably try that later. <laughs> but there was certainly an assumption that life is purpose. Somebody said to Richard Dawkins, uh, you know, without religion, where do we find purpose and meaning in our lives? And he said, basically, well, there is no purpose. You know, there's just survival. And we're here just to, he did say we're here to take in the wonder and the strangeness of being alive, which I thought was quite nice. Um, but that's not really a purpose. But again, it's really, that is... An assumption, it's an assumption that life is purposeless. It's not a hard fact. But I think people like Richard Dawkins and other scientists and other lay people do take these um, assumptions as facts. So I'm just going to go through a couple of uh, phenomena that are difficult to account for in terms of the standard model of science. And I'm going to go into human consciousness and altruism in a bit more detail in a moment. So I'm going to just kind of skip those just for now. But I could just say for now that there is an assumption that consciousness is produced by the brain. That our ideas and thoughts and our sense of identity are just produced by neurological networks, neural networks and different forms of neurological activity. And I'm, we'll move on to altruism a bit later. But well, an interesting thing is the influence of the mind over the body. And I guess what, what, what you could call, what we call the placebo effect is a good example of that. Uh, there was a really, did anybody see that really interesting documentary on BBC Two about three or four weeks ago about the placebo effect? Yeah, look it up if you didn't catch it because it was really interesting. Um, there, were, there were a group of 120 people who suffered from severe chronic back pain and they were told that there was this new wonder drug for back pain, which would help them. And, but they were all given just a placebo. 120 of them thought they were taking, or they thought, they thought there was a good chance they were taking a real drug. But 40, around 45% of them experienced a very significant alleviation of pain within a month or six weeks, I think it was. Uh, some of them started to walk again. Some of them started to exercise. And, they were told in the end, sorry, it was just a placebo. Uh, but rather than being disappointed, well, they were, they were quite disappointed. But some of them said, well, I'll just carry on taking it anyway because it seems to work. <laughs> and actually, there is um, a researcher in America, um, I can't remember his name just for now, but, but he's giving people placebos and telling them that it's a placebo. And he's finding that they still work even though people know they're just placebos, they're just taking sugar pills or totally inert substances. So this is basically, we're talking about here the influence of the mind over the body. If you believe that you are taking a powerful drug which will alleviate your symptoms and your pain, there's a good chance that it will work because in some way you're harnessing some form of healing potential in the mind or some way in which the mind can influence the functioning of the body. 
And this doesn't really make sense from the, in terms of the standard model. Because in the standard model, the, the mind is just a shadow of the brain. So it's like, you know, believing that somehow a shadow could affect the thing that it's a shadow of. It's like thinking that a, the images on a computer screen can somehow affect the hard drive or the software inside a computer. It doesn't make sense if the, the mind is just a shadow of the brain. And also things like anomalous phenomena, spiritual experiences, um, I sometimes call them awakening experiences, which is when we feel a sense of oneness with our surroundings. The world around us seems to, seems to come to life and be incredibly real and beautiful. And we feel somehow there's a sense of harmony in the world and we feel a sense of ecstasy. And those experiences are, in terms of the materialist model, they're usually explained in terms of unusual brain activity. But there's really been no convincing neurological explanation of those experiences. And I think the same is true of near-death experiences, which is, as you probably know, is when a person experiences a continuation of consciousness, even though for a short time they are clinically dead, in inverted commas. The inverted commas are important because they actually come back to life. But um, yeah, there, there are lots of attempts to explain near-death experiences in neurological terms or psychological terms. Well, in my view, all of them are pretty, pretty ropey, pretty deficient. And that's why I think you need to adopt an alternative explanation based on spiritual principles. And finally, this is one thing which surprised me when I began to do the research for my book, uh, Spiritual Science. I began to realize that there's a lot of, there are many contemporary scientists and biologists who are quite skeptical about the, the standard model of evolution the neo-Darwinian Darwinian model of evolution, which uh, speaks in terms of random mutations and natural selection. That's the kind of the standard model, but more and more scientists are believe, beginning to believe that evolution cannot be explained in those kind of simplistic terms. There's actually a movement called the third way of evolution, which is trying to develop an alternative to neo-Darwinian evolution. So these uh, biologists, they're not religious, by the way, they're not intelligent design theorists. Um, they're not religious at all. But they're rejecting the idea that random mutations are the main source of variation in evolution. And they're beginning to regret that evolution, that the natural selection has been elevated into a unique creative force that solves all the difficult problems, evolutionary problems, without a real empirical basis. So again, they're, they're, they're saying that it's just an assumption. The idea that natural selection is a creative force which can create all variation in life is basically an assumption, and they're questioning that assumption and looking at some alternatives. And one alternative which is becoming more um, prevalent is that mutations don't happen randomly. There's, there's a phenomenon called non-random mutation, which suggests that mutations can occur in a kind of dynamic way in response to challenges in the environment. So I think these are very significant developments um, in contemporary science, this new skepticism towards neo-Darwinism. Well, because of these issues, I think we need a new overall model to replace materialism. And it's not just me. Uh, a lot of um, contemporary philosophers, psychologists, and scientists believe that there are alternatives to the, the standard materialist model 
and they are developing the alternatives. One alternative which is often suggested nowadays is panpsychism. And it's actually a very ancient idea, but it's becoming more, take, it's taken more and more seriously by contemporary philosophers. And the basic premise of panpsychism is that all material things have a certain degree of consciousness. Even the simplest, most elemental material particles have a tiny, infinitesimally, undetectably small element of consciousness in them. And obviously, as material things become more complex, that level of consciousness increases. It becomes more evident. Living things develop self-consciousness and sentience and so forth. But according to this model, you don't need to explain how consciousness arose from matter or how the brain produces consciousness, because it doesn't. Because consciousness was always there right from, you know, whenever material particles came into being, consciousness also came into being. So that's um, panpsychism, which I think is a you know, very interesting alternative to materialism. But the model I'm developing is slightly different to panpsychism. Originally, I thought it was a kind of panpsychism, but a friend of mine who is a philosopher, I'm not a philosopher, he said, that's not panpsychism. You need a different term. So I thought, what can I call my, uh, my model? So I decided on panspiritism. <laughs> which is... Oh, sorry, panspiritism. I can't even, can't even spell it. <laughs> it's so new that I haven't yet learned to spell it. <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> but um, you understand it, yeah, that's the main thing. You, you get the general idea. <laughs> so the, the basic premise of panspiritism, which is slightly different to panpsychism, is that consciousness is the fundamental thing in the universe. Consciousness is not produced by the brain it's actually everywhere around us. It's a fundamental quality. You know, physicists talk about fundamental qualities like gravity and mass. And consciousness is a bit like that. It's fundamental. It's kind of inbuilt, ingrained into the universe. So it also pervades everything. It pervades the air around us, pervades all objects around us, chairs, tables, whiteboards, projectors. Everything is pervaded with consciousness. And I think you could also say that consciousness is actually more fundamental than the universe. You could say that actually consciousness, in some ways, is the source of the universe, the source of material things. And because it's so fundamental, it pervades every living thing and every material thing as well. It's all-pervading and universal. And according to this perspective, our own consciousness is not produced by the brain. It's actually an influx of fundamental consciousness. Or you could also call, call fundamental consciousness spirit, which is why I use the term panspiritism. I thought of pan-consciousnessism, consciousnessism, but uh, I definitely would have been, wouldn't have been able to spell that. Uh, so. 
And also, it doesn't sound very good, pan-consciousness is difficult to say, obviously. So I, I went for pan-spiritism. Well, you could call fundamental consciousness spirit. And our own consciousness is an influx of that. So that, in a sense, we are united, we are connected to everything else and to the universe itself. But I'll explain a bit more about that in a short while. So I'm presenting this as a new idea, but of course no ideas are new, and certainly not this one. It's one of the, um, the most ancient ideas in the history of the human race. Um, these are some indigenous groups around the world. And about 12 years ago, I wrote a book called The Fall, which was about anthropology and archaeology. And I did a lot of research into indigenous cultures around the world. And one of the things which surprised me was that there was a common concept which was shared by almost every or even every indigenous culture which I looked into. And this concept was of a, an all-pervading universal spiritual force, not a deity as such. There was no personality to this spiritual force. It was a kind of impersonal energy which pervaded everything. So some of these terms are obviously incredibly difficult to pronounce. Uh, but in America, it was often translated into the term the great spirit or the great mystery, which again was not a, a deity, not a god. It was an energy. It was a force, a spiritual force which pervaded everything. And I think that was one of, those, one of the reasons why many of these peoples were and are alarmed by the attitude to nature of the European colonists who came to their territories and ransacked the natural world and treated the natural world with uh, a lack of respect in an exploitative way. They were horrified because, according to their worldview, all living things were the manifestation of spirit force or the great mystery or the great spirit. And therefore, all things should be treated with respect. So there was a sense of connection between human beings and the natural world and other living things, which you know, we seem to have lost in some way. So yeah, the, these terms were all, these concepts applied to many different cultures around the world, in Japan, in New Guinea. And it was translated by anthropologists as the force which moves all things. Ramut was spirit energy, Imunu, was universal soul. And you could basically summarize these concepts in the way that I described fundamental consciousness. It was an all-pervading spiritual force which was in everything and which was also in human beings so that there was a fundamental oneness between human beings and the natural world. And there are many spiritual traditions in the world who have a similar, which have a similar concept. These are similar concepts of an all-pervading spiritual principle, a kind of fundamental spiritual principle which informs all living things and all material things. In Hindu Vedanta philosophy there's the term Brahman, which you could translate as spiritual force or spirit or just spirit. And Brahman is connected to our own spirit, which is Atman. So the goal of yoga philosophy in, in Hindu philosophy is to realize our own oneness, to connect Atman with Brahman, 
so that we experience the fundamental oneness of our own being and all living beings. And in Chinese Taoist philosophy, there is a concept of the Tao, which is, a, again, a fundamental spiritual principle. The Tao is a more kind of dynamic principle than Brahman. Obviously, there are some slight variations in these concepts. But the goal of life, according to Taoism, is to attune yourself, to live in harmony with the Tao, and allow the Tao to express itself in your life. And so on, in, in monotheistic mystical traditions, such as mystical Judaism, there is the concept of ensof, which literally translates as without end. But again, it's a kind of fundamental spiritual principle which pervades the whole universe and which pervades every living being. And sometimes in mystical Christianity, it was referred to as the Godhead. And sometimes the Godhead was referred to as even more fundamental than God, so that God actually emerged from the Godhead. That was what the mystics thought, but obviously that didn't go down very well with the, uh, the normal church authorities, which is why a lot of mystics um, were excommunicated, or even worse, excommunicated or executed, or even worse, because of uh, sort of heretical views. So as I say, this, the view that spirit or spiritual force or fundamental consciousness, this idea is actually very old and it's very fundamental to human culture. So I'm suggesting that we should resurrect this idea and use it as an explanatory principle uh, to explain human beings' experience and to explain the phenomena around us in the world. So I'm going to show that if we adopt this principle, it actually works extremely well uh, as an explanatory um, principle, an explanatory force. So I'm going to talk briefly about consciousness and show how this model can help us to understand consciousness. A lot of philosophers and scientists um, accept that consciousness is one of the, the greatest riddles in human experience. Uh, it's one of the things which is most difficult to explain. This is a great quote from David, David Chalmers, a uh, very uh, important contemporary philosopher of consciousness. And he says, consciousness poses the most baffling problems in the science of mind. There is nothing that we know more intimately than conscious experience, but nothing that is harder to explain. I think maybe the fact that we do know consciousness so intimately makes it difficult to explain because in a sense we are consciousness. We see and experience the world with our consciousness. And so it's difficult for us to get outside and to look at consciousness, to examine it and to understand it. And consciousness, you could say that consciousness is such a riddle that it's even quite difficult to define and that in itself causes problems because if you don't have a standard accepted definition then it's difficult to work towards a coherent explanation. So that's the thing we're going to look at first of all. How can we understand consciousness? Um, sorry, just before we go into that slide I just want to say a bit more about that. So actually what I want us to do, if it's okay with you for a few minutes, is to do a little exercise to help us to understand what consciousness is. And this will take maybe four or five minutes. 
That's it, after this exercise, we'll have a break. You'll deserve a break after this exercise. Uh, it's going to be tough. Um, so, it's kind of, you could say it's a kind of meditative exercise. It's a way of, it's a method, a method of exploring our own consciousness and trying to understand what consciousness is. So just for a moment, close your eyes for a few moments. And just give yourself a few moments to, to settle down. Just for a moment, just be aware of your breathing, the, the air entering and leaving your nose. Just be aware of, um, of your body on the chair, your feet on the ground in front of you. And just take a couple more breaths just to settle down and become a bit more relaxed. So I'd like you to bring your attention up towards your mental space. Just be aware of your mind space, maybe inside your head, that's where we normally experience it. And just bring your attention to any thoughts which seem to arise, any associations, and impressions or thoughts which seem to arise and pass through your mind. And just watch those thoughts as if you're sitting on a riverbank watching the river flow by beneath you. Just sit back and watch those thoughts and associations flow by, just like a river. And as you're watching those thoughts and associations pass by, be aware that you seem to be an observer. There seems to be a place inside you, a center inside you, from which you can observe those thoughts. Almost as if you are really sitting on a riverbank in a place of stillness, watching the river pass by. So just be aware of that center inside you from which you are aware of your thoughts. And see if you can root your sense of identity there. Maybe turn away Turn your awareness away from your thoughts and just center yourself in that place where you watch the thoughts. And now let's bring our attention outside ourselves. 
And first of all, just listen to the sounds inside this room. Bring your awareness outside yourself to the sounds inside this room. And bring your attention to your sense of smell. See if you can pick up any aromas around you in this room. And also to feeling, see if you can, what you can feel with your arms and your feet and your fingers. Maybe the feeling of the clothes against your body. And finally, just bring your awareness to the, the light that you can see, even though your eyes are closed, you can sense the light through your eyelids. And again, just be aware that there's a center inside you with which or from which you are aware of these different phenomena, the sounds, and smells and sights. There seems to be a center of identity and awareness inside you. And now, just bring your attention back to your body sitting on the chair. And let's slowly open our eyes again and bring that little exercise to a close. So we've basically been experiencing consciousness. We've been exploring our own consciousness. And I think it's a lot better to, to explore consciousness, to experience it, in order to understand it than to try to describe it. That's the best way of trying to understand it. <clears throat> so on, one, on, on the one hand, in terms of quite a broad definition of consciousness, consciousness includes our subjective activity, our thoughts and associations, the impressions which flow through our minds. It also includes that sense of awareness inside you, that sense of being somebody who is observing inside you. And consciousness also includes awareness, you know, the ability to be aware of phenomena around you, sounds and sights and smells and so forth. Consciousness works through the senses to provide awareness of our surroundings. So I think there's three aspects of consciousness there, subjectivity, subjective experience, that center of awareness, and also awareness of external stimuli. But the big question is, where does consciousness actually come from? Does it come from the brain? Is it produced by neurological activity? All of these associations and thoughts, and even this sense of being somebody, is that just the result of neural networks and the activity of our brains? Or is it explainable in other terms, in more esoteric terms? Find out after the break. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Thank you.
Thank you. <laughs> so before the break, I left you on a, a cliffhanger. Just like you're doing a, just like you do it soap operas. Have you noticed that when you watch a soap opera, you, have, you always sort of pause before uh, a significant event. So the, the significant question I left you with was, is consciousness produced by the brain or could it have another alternative source which is less simplistic and less obvious? So there was certainly an assumption amongst many scientists and philosophers that consciousness could be understood in terms of the brain. Francis Crick, um, he was famous for breaking the genetic code with James Watson. And once he'd done that, he wanted to turn his attention towards consciousness because he thought that he could break or understand consciousness in the same way as he had with genes or the genetic code. And there was a basic assumption that if you investigate the brain in enough detail, if you understand the workings of the brain, you should be able to understand how the brain generates our conscious experience. So the basic aim was to identify the neural correlates of consciousness, to identify the kinds of brain activity which are associated with conscious experience, and those must be the cause of conscious experience. Well, after 25, 30 years of this enterprise of trying to understand the brain and how it relates to consciousness, there's really been very little progress. There's still a fundamental lack of understanding of how the brain relates to consciousness or how the brain could actually produce consciousness. And more and more scientists and philosophers are beginning to realize it's, more, it's actually quite problematic. It's becoming more and more problematic to associate the brain purely with, sorry, to associate consciousness purely with the brain. And that's why more and more people are turning to philosophies like panpsychism as an alternative to the, the simple materialist model. And here, here are some of the problems with associating consciousness purely with brain activity. The basic problem is that there's not a reliable and consistent relationship between conscious experience and brain activity. There's, there's an assumption that, brain, that consciousness is associated with the firing of brain cells. But there's not, you know, it's quite contradictory. Sometimes uh, brain cells fire just as much in deep states of unconsciousness, like in deep sleep or in unconsciousness following an epileptic seizure. Brain cells are firing just as much as when we are conscious, even though consciousness appears to be absent. And sometimes neurons correlate with conscious experience, sometimes not. There's no consistent relationships between them. But I think one of the biggest problems in associating consciousness purely with the brain is that high-intensity conscious experience can occur when there is little or, or even no apparent brain activity. And you could take the example of near-death experiences. There are many significant cases of near-death experiences when a person is clinically dead, in inverted commas, but they report events which they witness while they are outside their bodies watching a medical procedure or maybe in a... You've, you've had that experience? And these are quite difficult to explain in, um, in neurological terms, obviously, because if the brain is dead, how can it produce conscious experience? How can a person witness events which are taking place? 
And some of these, uh, some of these cases have been very thoroughly investigated by researchers. There was one uh, famous example of a guy in America who had a near-death experience during an operation. And he recognized there was some kind of problem. There was an emergency. He was clinically dead for a short time. But he rose out of his body, and he saw the surgeon uh, waving his arms like a, a bird, waving, waving his arms as if they were wings. And he thought, what the heck is going on? Why is the surgeon doing this? So the surgeon was literally walking around, uh, waving his arms like this. And he saw other, other elements of the procedure as well. So when he came to, when he recovered, and he spoke to the anaesthetist, and he said, why was the surgeon waving his arms around like a bird, as if he had wings? And the, the anaesthetist was shocked. And he went to get the surgeon. And apparently, it was a Japanese surgeon who had a very strong, um, uh, well, he was very concerned with hygiene, so he wouldn't touch anything. He wouldn't touch any people or any instruments. He would give directions by waving his elbows. <laughs> so he'd say, you, do this. And, and the surgeon confirmed that you know, he was the only surgeon he knew who did this. It was a very idiosyncratic, obviously a very idiosyncratic uh, form of behavior. So obviously, witnessing events like that is very difficult to explain when there is no neurological activity. How can a person's consciousness continue, apparently, in the absence of neurological activity? And that can also apply to coma as well. Coma is obviously a state of very low neurological activity, but there are many reports of people having very intense experiences during a coma. There's actually a, a student of mine three or four years ago called Max who, he had a stroke and was in a coma for a week or so. And while he was in a coma, he had a typical out-of-body experience and he saw a bright light. This is very similar to a near-death experience, seeing a bright light and so on. But what the strangest aspect of the experience was he met his great-grandmother, who had died years before. And his great-grandmother was Greek, she only spoke Greek, and Max didn't speak Greek. So he'd never, even though he'd known his great-grandmother, he'd never had a proper conversation with her. Uh, but in, in his coma state, he could actually speak to her, and he asked her lots of questions about her life in Greece during the war and before the war. Uh, this was his great-grandmother. And so he got lots of information, and when he recovered, he spoke to his father, and his grandfather, who again confirmed the information about their life in Greece before and during the Second World War and afterwards. So again, the problem here is, you know, a person with very low level, a very low level of neurological activity is having very intense conscious experiences. So that's very difficult to explain in terms of a, some kind of direct association between brain, the brain and consciousness. This is an interesting picture. Uh, you can see the person on the left, this is a normal human brain on the right. The person on the left has almost no brain matter. You can see there are two giant holes in the two different hemispheres of the brain. And this was a French civil servant. Um, <laughs> why, why are you laughing? <laughs> I actually, I showed this image to a talk I gave a few weeks ago, and a woman came up at the end and said, I am a French civil servant. <laughs> she was quite offended, but I said, But um, this was a man, I think this was around the, the year 2007, about 10 years ago. He had a brain scan. He was in his 40s. He had a brain scan for the first time in his life. And he was a fairly normal guy, married, with two kids. And unfortunately, he found that there was 
two giant holes in his brain. Uh, he's actually just literally, these are just empty spaces where his brain should be. And actually, he did have some brain matter. You can see it around the edge. It was all, it was all pushed to the edges of his, of his brain, of his skull. But scientists estimated that he lacked around 70% of normal brain matter. So again, you know, he was a fairly normal person, um, civil servant, you can't get more normal than that. Um, and he'd been functioning fairly well all his life without a brain, or with, with only 30% of a brain. So it would be interesting to find out how it, um, you know, once he found out that, if it affected his life in any way. A bit like a placebo effect. Can, can I point out that hmm? those people only use 10% anyway? Sorry? Those people only use 10%. Yeah, that, that's true. Hmm. I guess as a civil servant, he didn't need to use much of his brain. So. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My father was a civil servant. I'm joking. Sorry about that. A bad joke. I'm a university lecturer and only use 5% of my brain. So, um, so again, you know, there, there's a mismatch between um, neurological activity and consciousness. And there's another one here, but I won't go into detail, but this is a Chinese lady who lacked, uh, also lacked a lot of brain tissue. But really, when, we, when we're discussing consciousness, we have to deal with what David Chalmers called the hard problem. The philosopher David Chalmers called it the hard problem. And even beyond the difficulties of working out how the brain may be associated with consciousness, there is the fundamental problem of how the soggy lump of matter, which is my brain and yours too, this gray, soggy, clay-like ball of matter, how could that possibly give rise to the, the richness and variety of my conscious experience. So some people have compared that to a magical trick. You know, it's like, can we see that trick again, please? The neurons are giving rise to consciousness. It's a magical trick. Uh, other people have compared it to water turning into wine. It's like the water of the brain turning into the wine of consciousness. So there's a, there's a fundamental ontological difference between the brain and consciousness, which is impossible to bridge. You know, it seems impossible to understand how little bits of matter in my brain could give rise to this richness and variety of conscious experience. So for these reasons, we need a different model of explaining consciousness. And in terms of the pan-spiritist perspective, the problem becomes easier to explain because as I mentioned before, consciousness is not produced by the brain at all. We don't have to look at the brain to work out how it could produce consciousness, because it doesn't. Consciousness is a fundamental thing in the universe. It's everywhere around us. And therefore, the function of the brain is not to produce consciousness, but to actually pick up consciousness and allow it to enter into our individual being and to, so that we can become individually conscious. So the brain is like a, a transmitter, it picks up consciousness, and we become individually conscious as a result. So the function of the brain is to canalize fundamental consciousness or spirit into our individual being. And again, this isn't, you know, it's not my own theory, other people have put forward very similar theories. And I mean, one argument which is used against this theory is that damage to the brain causes damage to consciousness, you know, it impairs consciousness. And if you take drugs, which I hope none of you do, but that can also affect your consciousness. So obviously, there is a relationship between brain and consciousness. 
but you could still apply that to this model because obviously a radio doesn't produce sound, but if a radio is damaged, its transmitting power is also damaged. So it doesn't affect the idea that, that in itself, that does not prove that consciousness is produced by the brain. So I think this is a, you know, this is the beginning of a, a more coherent attempt to explain consciousness. And I'd like to turn towards a different topic now, which I'll also look at from the standpoint of the standard scientific model and the pan-spirited model, pan-spiritist model. And this is altruism. I'd like you to help me out a little bit with this one because I'm, you know, I'm not a particularly altruistic person. Um, I can't think of any examples of altruism from my recent past. <laughs> but I want you to know, I'm joking. Obviously, I'm intensely, incredibly altruistic. <laughs> but I want you to think, recall a recent situation where you showed kindness to another person or a living being. It could be an animal. And describe it to the person next to you. Uh, just to start you off, I, I will give you a brief example of my own. Um, this happened just a week ago. I was about to mop my kitchen floor, which I do, don't do very often. It's kind of like a first time for six months. But when I picked up the mop, it had spiders on it. Two spiders fell off the mop and went all over the kitchen floor. And I thought, ooh, you know, I've got to save those spiders. I can't mop those spiders. And so I gently picked up the spiders and put them onto a piece of paper and took them outside the back door and essentially saved their lives. So, I was... Thank you, thank you. So. <laughs> that was why I did it, because um, it makes me feel good about myself. And, and you were impressed by that, so that was my motivation. No, but seriously, I want you to think of, um, think, think of a similar example of an act of kindness you did recently, and tell it to the person next to you. I'll give you just a, two or three minutes to do that. I want you to talk about this, but I'd like you to consider for a moment your motivation for the act of kindness too. Was it a, an act of pure altruism? Or was it some, some kind of hidden selfish motive, some sort of hidden egoic motive? But let's, I tell you what, let's, uh, just to lift our spirits, um, to put us in an altruistic mood, let's take a couple of examples. Anyone would like to briefly share their altruistic act? I gave my seat up to an old lady on the train uh, and mm. immediately found a seat in first class. Excellent. Mm. So this gentleman gave up his seat in first, no, gave up your seat for an old lady. And as a reward, you found a seat I in first class. Seat, mm. Every time the doors opened, mm -hmm. she'd wave at me very kindly. Ah, <laughs> mm. <laughs> first right, all right. Uh, one brief, anybody like to just briefly share another example? Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's still a nice thing to do to buy a coffee to, well, buy coffees for two homeless people. Yeah, it's, it's still an altruistic thing to do. Okay. So that's what I want. What I want to get into. What is the motive of altruistic acts? We are all altruistic to some degree. Hopefully, from time to time, we all perform altruistic acts. 
And I think, you know, it's, it's a feature of crisis situations too. I, I live in Manchester, and as you, as you will remember, 18 months ago there was a terrorist attack at Victoria Station in Manchester. And I spoke to a paramedic who was at the scene afterwards, and he said the thing which he remembers more than the, the horror of the attack and the injuries of people, the thing which he remembers most is the acts of kindness which everybody showed, that everybody was speaking to each other, checking they were okay, helping each other, trying to help each other's injuries. There was just this incredible altruistic spirit. And he said that you know, the normal reaction to danger is to run away, but he saw a lot of people running back to help out. Uh, people who were there, as, well, it was, it was mainly uh, parents of children. And the, if their parents were nurses or doctors, they were running back in to help injured people. So crisis situations often bring out this incredible altruism in people, which seems very instinctive. And altruism is quite difficult to explain in terms of the standard scientific model. It's quite difficult to explain in Darwinian terms. You can explain why we're altruistic to people who are close to us, to our extended family, because we share our genes with them. So indirectly, we're helping our own genes. But what about, you know, what, if I help a spider, if I save a spider's life? You know, I'm not related to spiders, uh, hopefully. So I might be. Yeah, I probably am. In, a distant, in the distant past. But there's no close genetic relationship, so what is the motivation for me to help a spider? Um, but here's, here's some possible explanations. Disguise self-interest, increasing respect and status. Uh, you can say it's making yourself feel better about yourself, impressing other people, but also making yourself think, well, I'm a, I'm a good person after all. You know, I'm not so bad. Um, but also, if you're religious, maybe it improves your chances of getting to heaven. Maybe that's your motivation. And increased reproductive possibilities. Did you notice any... Did you notice any... <laughs> no, don't answer that. <laughs> no, but the theory here is that uh, if we show off our wealth by being charitable, uh, members of the opposite sex or the same sex will be more... They'll think, oh, he's a good person. He's also got lots of resources. So um, I'm attracted to him or her. So it increases your reproductive possibilities. And also, um, we do good things as a strategy, maybe. We help other people so that we can get help in return. Not necessarily. I was thinking about this, though, when I was uh, driving my... Now that my father can't drive, I tend to spend a lot of time driving, driving him around, which was exactly what he did when I was 14 years old. So I think, you know, this is... Maybe that's why he was doing it. When... <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but also kin selection, yeah, we're obviously altruistic to people who are closest, uh, who are genetically closely related to us. But I don't think this can explain altruism. It can't explain the kind of instinctive altruism where we put our own lives in danger to help other people. And, and also when we help members of different species. So why would we put our own lives in danger or even, or, or just impair our own well-being potentially to help other people? There's no genetic advantage to us. In fact, it's potentially a genetic disadvantage because it could harm us or even endanger our lives. So I think in order to explain altruism, we need to look into empathy. And I think you can, you can suggest that empathy is a kind of spiritual experience. Empathy is normally seen as a, you know, the ability to imagine what other people are feeling, the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes and see the world from their perspective. 
And that is a kind of empathy, but I think true empathy or deep empathy is more than that. Empathy is the ability to actually sense in a very direct and real way what other people are feeling. So if another person is suffering, you can sense their suffering, you can feel it in yourself, and as a result, you feel the urge to alleviate their suffering. You can actually feel what they are feeling because, in a sense, you share your consciousness with them. We, sh we all share the same essential consciousness, and therefore, we have the ability to sense other people's feelings, to sense each other's feelings. And that ability to pick up, to feel what other people are feeling, gives rise to altruism. It gives rise to the impulse to alleviate other people's or other beings' suffering. Uh, or sometimes it can be just very immediate. Because we share the same essential consciousness, we respond to danger, to crisis faced by other people. Because in a sense, we feel it. We pick it up through our shared consciousness. And I love this quote from Schopenhauer. This is Schopenhauer, the German philosopher. And as you can tell, well, actually, he looks quite altruistic in that picture. But he, um, he wasn't a particularly altruistic person himself. He was quite a nasty character, unfortunately. But he, doesn't, you know, he obviously didn't practice what he preached. But he gave this really good explanation of um, altruism. He said, My own true inner being actually exists in every living creature as truly and immediately as known to my consciousness only in myself. This realization is the ground of compassion upon which all true, that is to say, unselfish virtue rests and whose expression is in every good deed. So he's saying that we share the same fundamental being. So my being exists in your being, your being exists in mine. We're part of the same network of being. And that's the root of compassion. We feel compassion because we are essentially the same consciousness. We feel each other's suffering. And we respond altruistically to each other's suffering. And obviously, this doesn't always happen. Human beings can be extremely selfish as well. We can be greedy. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the example of the Manchester terrorist attack provides a very good il illustration of that. Uh, one homeless people one homeless person went into the arena and was helping people. He was sort of tending to injured people, uh, helping to stem the blood flow of injured people. And another homeless person came in to steal people's belongings. So the two sides of human nature are kind of graphically illustrated by that, the greediness and the, the altruism. So obviously we're not always altruistic, but we have the capacity to be extremely altruistic because of our shared consciousness. And so again, I think that pan-spiritism, which suggests that we do share the same fundamental consciousness, it provides a good explanation for altruism. So I only have uh, five or 10 minutes left before some questions, so I'll just briefly, briefly mention a couple of other areas. Um, I wanted to talk about spiritual experiences, um, which I call, I prefer to call them awakening experiences. I wrote this book called Waking from Sleep about awakening experiences. 
But I'll, I'll just briefly describe what a, an awakening experience is. In fact, I'll ask you a question. You can answer this question by raising your hand or not. Have you ever had an awakening experience? That is, a temporary expansion and intensification of awareness. This could be an experience in which your surroundings have become intensely real, when you felt a sense of connection to them and a deep sense of well-being inside. Or perhaps you felt a sense of harmony and meaning pervade the world, even a sense that all things are one and you are part of this oneness. So has anybody had that type of experience? <coughs> good, good. Yeah, so as that shows, these experiences are quite common. Surveys show that most people have had them at least once in their lives. But this is one, this kind of experience is quite difficult to explain in terms of the standard materialist model. Um, I'll just give you one brief example of a, a very, these, these are both very intense awakening experiences. I'll, I'll just go through this one briefly. This is an experience which was, which was recalled uh, by a man from childhood. He had this experience when he was about six years old and he was running out of his house to play and suddenly, as he describes it, everything melted. Everything was pulsating with life and energy. I looked at myself. I was made up of the same pulsating energy. Time just melted as well. I carried on up my way up to the local field. I looked up to, I looked up to the sky and then just felt the oneness of everything. Felt the earth spinning in its orbit. I melted into the ground, though this time everything looked as, as it would through normal vision, except the aliveness and brightness and newness of everything. But there was quite, it's a very powerful experience, a very intense awakening experience. But it had a kind of, quite a sad aftermath because he made the mistake of telling his parents about it. And uh, it's always a mistake to, to tell your parents about your spiritual experiences, <laughs> as, I, as I found myself. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, he had a few similar experiences and his parents thought, oh, maybe there's something wrong with him. We'll take him to see the doctor. No. So they took him to the doctor. The doctor referred him to a psychiatrist and unfortunately ended up taking medication. No. So that's, that's a very, um, unfortunately, that's not uncommon. Um, because and it, it does boil down to the materialist model. These experiences are seen as aberrational in terms of the materialist model. He wasn't seen. Hmm? I, sorry, I don't understand. He wasn't seen. He wasn't ill. Oh, no. He wasn't ill, no. There was, there was basically nothing wrong with him, but you know, his parents were worried because he was having these anomalous experiences. But yeah, the, the, one of the basic premises of the materialist model is, is that anomalous experiences like that are aberrational. They're produced by unusual brain activity. They're produced by a kind of malfunctioning brain. And that's the way that awakening experiences are explained in terms of less activity, and the part of the brain responsible for awareness of boundaries, that, resi that results in a sense of oneness. Also, stimulation of the temporal lobes, that's also been put forward as an experience, as an explanation for spiritual experiences. But it doesn't work, you know, there's no evidence that there is any stimulation of the temporal lobes in spiritual experiences. And th the basis of that explanation is that people with epilepsy are supposed to have uh, frequent spiritual experiences because of the temporal lobes. But even that's not clear. There's no, really no evidence that people with epilepsy have significantly more spiritual experiences than other people. 
some evidence suggests that they actually, they actually have less, fewer spiritual experiences than other people. But I think if you adopt the pan-spiritist perspective, these experiences are not anomalies. They're not caused by aberrational brain activity. They're not caused by a malfunctioning brain. In a sense, they're a fundamental, they're an intuition or an experience of spirits, of fundamental consciousness. In very intense spiritual experiences, people actually encounter or experience a oneness, a sense of oneness. They feel that they are one with the universe. They feel that all things around them are one. Things seem to be lit up with a kind of radiance. There's a sense of harmony in things. And I think this is a basic, this is a fundamental experience of the consciousness, the fundamental consciousness of the universe. It's almost as if filters are falling away. Our consciousness has become more intense. Our own consciousness has become more intense. And we experience something close, something closer to the fundamental reality of things, which is spirit. And I'll briefly mention a couple of other things which I think the pan-spiritist model can explain. I think it can also explain the placebo effect because in this model, the mind, both the mind and the body are expressions of fundamental consciousness or spirit. But the mind is actually an influx of consciousness, of fundamental consciousness. It's closer to fundamental consciousness than the body. And so the mind, in a sense, has a more subtle and more powerful influence. And therefore, it can influence the form and functioning of the body. That's also been shown in, under states of hypnosis. There's a lot of evidence showing that under hypnosis, uh, mental intention can strongly, powerfully affect the functioning of the body. Uh, and hypnosis can have a very powerful analgesic effect, which is why it's sometimes, even now, it's sometimes used by dentists as an analgesic. And before um, modern anesthetics, a lot of medical people, doctors and dentists, used um, hypnosis as a way of inducing, um, as a way of alleviating pain. And near-death experiences, you know, this, these strange phenomena when consciousness seems to continue in the absence of brain activity, you know, they, they don't really make sense unless, unless we assume that consciousness is not just produced by the brain. You know, how can the brain, how can consciousness carry on without the brain if it's produced by the brain? But if we assume that consciousness is in some sense beyond the brain, it's independent in some sense of the brain, then near-death experiences begin to make sense. It becomes possible to imagine that consciousness can continue in some form in the absence of brain functioning, even though it sounds counterintuitive. And quantum physics is very interesting. Quantum physics is one of those areas which, uh, you know, it's extremely esoteric. There was a famous uh, physicist, I think it was Richard Feynman, the American physicist, he said, if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. <laughs> Uh, but I think some of the findings of quantum physics do point towards a fundamental consciousness. They do hint that the fundamental nature, the most fundamental thing in the universe is consciousness. And there are lots of strange quantum phenomena, such as entanglement, where particles are, are twinned and they react with each other. They react in parallel, even though they are many miles away. There was even an experiment last year by Chinese researchers, I think I've got that on the slide actually, 
Um, yeah, in 2017, a team of Chinese scientists demonstrated that entangled particles maintain their link 870 miles away from each other. So they managed to put a particle in a, in a space station 870 miles away above the Earth, and the twin particle was on the ground, and they were still reacting um, as if they were entangled. They were still entangled, even though they were 870 miles apart. So that entanglement suggests a fundamental unity of things, a fundamental interconnection between all things. And just as altruism does, altruism suggests a fundamental interconnection of all living beings. And spiritual experiences also suggest that. In spiritual experiences, a sense of connection, a sense of oneness is one of the fundamental features. So I think we're dealing with a, a universe which consists fundamentally of consciousness, and which therefore, in which therefore everything is interconnected and all living beings share, including human beings, share the essential consciousness. And as I say, if we adopt this model, it becomes a lot easier to explain anomalous phenomena such as spiritual experiences, near-death experiences. In the materialist model, the only way of explaining these experiences is to brush them away and to pretend that they are not real or they're just neurological aberrations. And I think this applies to telepathy as well. You know, I think if you look into the empirical evidence, there is actually some very suggestive evidence that telepathy is real. Even, um, let me just briefly show you this. This is the, I think this is the edition of the American Psychologist Journal from last August. And, sorry, the picture's covering the text there. But there was an article um, called The Experimental Evidence for Parapsychological Phenomena, a review. And the article suggests that there is actually very significant evidence uh, and that phenomena like telepathy and precognition are, you have to conclude that they are real based on the empirical and statistical evidence. So, so I think there's a new openness to this perspective. But certainly if you presume that we are all interconnected, we share the same essential consciousness, then it becomes possible to imagine that we can occasionally, under certain circumstances, pick up on each other's intentions and each other's thoughts. Uh, I don't think it's, um, you know, it's too far-fetched. I think it's puzzling that many scientists are very dismissive of this evidence. But I think that comes back to the idea that materialism is really a belief system. And like all belief systems, if you're presented with evidence against it, your first instinct is to sweep it away, to pretend that it's not valid or not, uh, or that it's a kind of fraud, or that it's not genuine evidence. So I think if you do open up to a spiritual perspective, then science becomes wider and deeper, and it becomes possible to explain a lot of phenomena which don't normally seem to make sense. So let me just leave you with um, a quote, one of my favorite quotes from the Upanishads, the Indian spiritual texts. They're my favorite spiritual book, the Upanishads. I always think when I read the Upanishads, even though they were, they were written maybe 2,500 years ago, some of them, they seem very wise and very modern even, very contemporary, full of eternal, timeless wisdom. So this is from the, one of the Upanishads, a part of the infinite consciousness 
becomes our own finite, finite consciousness. It is the source of creation and the universal in us all. The spirit is consciousness and gives consciousness to the body. So that just expresses the idea that consciousness is a fundamental universal principle and it enters into our individual being and becomes our own identity. And we should consider that in the inner world, Brahman is consciousness. And we should consider that in the outer world, Brahman is space. So spirit or Brahman is our own consciousness and spirit fills the space around us. So again, it's a fundamental principle in the universe. Okay, thank you, thank you. If, as you say, consciousness comes unbidden to living things, what have you got to say about animal consciousness? They have different sensory receptors to us, so they tune into different energies. Yeah, well, obviously animals are conscious, but they have a different kind of consciousness. You know, the, the mind, every creature, every living species has a different kind of mind. But they're still, you know, they still have the same essential consciousness, but their mental structures um, create a different form of um, awareness and a different form of mind. So I think there's no, you know, there's no um, problem there. It's just a different form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lady at the front who, before you had a question. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask, you covered it really, but I didn't know what entanglement meant. I was just going to ask you. But then following that, you said about twin particles mm -hmm. reacting to each other. Mm -hmm. How do they react? Well, what, can, what are the symptoms uh, of their reaction? The symptoms? Well, how can you do um, the reaction? Yeah, well, um, if you like. The, ba the basic idea is, um, I mean, I don't understand. Nobody understands quantum physics, so. But the basic idea is that once, um, once particles have interacted or once they split off from a larger particle, they always remain interlinked. They always behave as if they are connected. Well, they, they, they move in the same direction. If one particle moves, the other one will move at the same time. So yeah, they, they are connected in that way. Almost as if they are aware of each other and they react to each other's behavior. Um, what do you, I mean, I don't know if you know much about it. What do you think of complexity science and um, and the people are saying that that could provide a bridge between standard science and spirituality. Have you heard of that? Um, yeah, this lady's asking about complexity theory and if it can provide a bridge between um, um, science and spirituality. Yeah, well, complexity theory suggests that um, uh, human beings, uh, not human beings, that living systems have an innate tendency to move towards greater complexity, greater order. It's kind of inbuilt inside them. And again, that's uh, it's a slight alternative to Darwinian theory because you know it's difficult to, in a sense, it seems a bit mystical. You know, where is this sense of this inbuilt tendency to move towards greater complexity? But I actually agree with that. I think living systems do have this dynamic tendency to move towards greater complexity. It's been it's happened for billions of years since the beginnings of the universe. There's been this progressive tendency to move towards greater complexity, greater order. It's happened in evolution. Even on one level, evolution is about the increasing complexity of physical forms uh, and also the diversity of physical forms, obviously. But at the same time of that, there's an increasing, complex, an increasing intensity of consciousness in living forms over time. So, yeah, I, I, I actually think it's an interesting idea of complexity.
Yeah, right at the back there. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, with regard to uh, the water of the brain to the wine of consciousness, um, I'm fascinated by that too. I've come across uh, Donald Hoffman proposes conscious realism, and I've also come across uh, orchestrated objective reduction. And, and I think they're both ways of, uh, that's by Stuart Hamrock and Sir Roger Penrose, and I think they're both ways of trying to explain it. Um, I'd love to give a simple overview of both to people who haven't heard them, but they are quite complex and go on for a while. I was wondering if you'd come across them. If you have any thoughts. Um, so, yeah, this gentleman's wondering if I've come across uh, uh, the work of, is it Penrose? Penrose and Hammeroff? Roger Penrose and Orchestrated Complexity. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't because <laughs> I can't pronounce it. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, aware, I'm aware of the, they have a quantum theory of consciousness, don't they? They, yeah. they try to explain consciousness in terms of uh, quantum principles, which is interesting, but it's almost as if they're replacing one mystery with another. And they're replacing the mystery of consciousness with the mystery of quantum physics. Because, you know, you can't explain quantum physics just as you can't explain consciousness. So it doesn't really provide an answer, I don't think. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. If you're saying that our brain is like a radio channeling consciousness, and the damage to the brain means the radio is broken, how do you explain people missing 70% of their brain and they're still conscious? Well the, well, the brain is, is extremely flexible. Um, you know, the, there is a field of neuroplasticity. And it's almost as if the brain will mould itself or will reform itself to adapt to damage. It, it can do that in some so, circumstances. So huge. <laughs> I know, I know. But I mean, I think that, you know, it, it just shows that the brain is not directly related to consciousness. Consciousness can flow through the brain um, because the brain can adapt itself. It, it's very fluid and plastic. Yeah, very flexible. Yeah, there are many cases of people who are, you know, suffer significant brain damage and strokes, but the brain reforms itself. The brain can be retrained. Parts of the brain that were previously inactive, or sorry, previously had one function, can shift to other functions. So the brain has this amazing tendency to adapt to difficulty and... You know, I think that's what's happening. It's adapting to the amazing circumstances of lacking 70% brain tissue. Somehow it's adapting to that and managing to work through those difficulties. Consciousness is in the cloud. Consciousness is in the cloud? In the cloud, the brain just... Oh, right, yeah, that's, uh, that's the basic idea. Hi. As you Hi. alluded to, um, it seems uh, things like panspiritism uh, aren't the mainstream kind of scientific consensus at the moment, what sort of experiments, if money were no object, could you envision that might, you know, prove or disprove, put it to rest, you know, a falsifiable, reproducible experiment to demonstrate that information is being transmitted via a separate magisteria? Wow. That's a good question. <laughs> um. So you're asking, what, what kind of experiments would I suggest to prove uh, panspiritism? Um, good question. Well, I've always, um, um, I've always been fascinated by these awakening experiences, which I've talked about. And there's a tremendous amount of um, qualitative evidence for awakening experiences. And you can trace common themes that occur in them. Uh, different cultures around the world have similar experiences with the same themes. So awakening experiences seem to be an innate human tendency. And 
in a sense, it, it depends on your outlook. I mean, I think, because I'm a, like a qualitative psychologist, I think that qualitative evidence is extremely significant in itself. And so I'm not so interested in you know, hard empirical evidence. But I, I would like to, I think it would be very interesting if you could somehow, if somebody says, I'm having a mystical experience, if you could say, okay, get, let's get to a brain scanner as quick as, pos quick as possible. <laughs> then you could, you could um, if you could have a brain image of a person having a mystical or awakening experience, that would be very interesting. Then you could show that even though the experience is not produced by the brain, it's associated with certain activity in the brain. They're doing that at the moment, that Imperial. Are they? Yeah. Um, oh, with um, psychedelics? Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard about that. Hmm. Um, Okay, uh, there's a question over here. <laughs> oh, well, the lady's got the microphone. So. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Oh, that sounds weird. My voice <laughs> is behind me. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the uh, conversation. I'm not sure if I have a question for you or maybe a contribution. Um, I've been studying something called pranic healing. And I had to yoga for the last five, six years. And it's all to do with the chakras. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that's incredibly spiritual. Science tends to only use the five senses to measure physical material things. But our understanding is that the chakras have a physical, a psychological and a spiritual function. Mm -hmm. And all physical disease is due to inhibited life force. So it's where the chakras are malfunctioning. Mm -hmm. And with the crown chakra, that's where intuition comes through and um, the higher soul, the divine spark, is simply pure light with consciousness. So when someone is suggesting about we are all connected within a oneness, when, for example, you get a phone call and um, you just say, oh, I was just thinking about you, that isn't the thought, that isn't your own thought telepathically, mm -hmm through feeling, we're all connected through the solar plexus chakra. So the solar plexus chakra is where the feeling comes through, it goes to the mind, and you experience someone else's thought, and then you say, oh, I was just thinking about you, and they ring. Mm -hmm. And with pranic healing, we are alleviating all the symptoms of cancer through the understanding, and we're not allowed to say we're curing it because of the 1939 Cancer Act, but we are allowed to say that we're alleviating all the symptoms. So through understanding the chakras, there is only oneness. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the lady beforehand was talking about the heart and the secret being in the heart. And if we do service, we increase our own karma. Um, but it is, pranic healing has embraced spirituality with science. Mm -hmm. um, and it's okay. a, a manifestation that has to sort of come to fruition and uh, it's here. So if any of you want to really understand sort of higher truths and teachings about the chakras and everything else, it's just an incredible, the understanding is incredible okay. and it's mm -hmm. here for humanity, you know, to uh, alleviate suffering. Okay, thanks for that. Interesting Thank perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with it, but it's, it's uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Hi, thanks so much for your lecture. Thank you. Um, I think, I guess, hopefully, maybe most of us in the room understand the importance of spirituality with, with science um, in, and research, etc. 
I really wanted to know your personal opinion and view on the future of science without that spirituality element mm -hmm. and where that might lead and you know what do you think there is a, a future for science without a spiritual element to mm. it? i don't think there is a future for science without a spiritual element i think uh, it's becoming more that's becoming more evident i think in some ways it's tied to i think we are as a, as a species we're you know we're heading for crises at the moment yeah. i think the materialist model is connected with that i think in some ways it's produced the crisis the crises so I think the model is in some way falling to pieces in response to the crises because there's a growing assumption that there needs to be a new outlook, a new paradigm. And I think, you know, it's also becoming evident in the way that modern scientific findings are actually contradicting the materialist model. Like, you know, I talked about non-random mutation, for example. And the, I mean, the findings of quantum physics have always sort of contradicted the materialist model, but that's becoming more and more the case in recent times. So I think, you know, there, there is a sort of a process of cultural change underway. And I think we are moving slowly towards a different model of science. And the increasing acceptance towards things like sight phenomena is probably part of that. Also, the increasing interest in awakening experiences is part of that. Um, so I'm, in some ways, I'm cautiously, opt cautiously optimistic. I think there is a, a change underway. The last, that's the last one. Oh, that one more, sorry. Right, right, sorry. Almost cut you off there. Hi, thank you for the wonderful talk. Um, actually, two bits. One is just curious that, I found it curious that um, you coined the term pan-spiritism. Do you know that spiritism is a doctrine, not a religion, but a doctrine? that has existed since the 1850s, around late 1850s. So check it out. <laughs> do you mean, uh, what, do you mean like, uh, so this lady, sorry, this lady's saying that, am I aware that spiritism, spiritism. is a doctrine that yeah. has existed since the 1850s? Yeah, spiritism? about late 1850s or so. You mean, is that related to mediumship and psychic yeah. phenomena? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and it, it relates a lot to your talk. Yeah, hmm. yeah. okay. Um, they do yeah. like to prove stuff. Well, they did when mm. it started. So it's, it's a little bit of science mm. behind, a little mm. bit. Yeah. Well, I think, I think one of the encouraging signs that's taking place now is that um, I, know, I know quite a few researchers in the world of Psy and um, because Psy is a controversial area, they're conducting experiments with extreme rigor, you know, double blind, triple blind experiments under very tightly controlled conditions. And they're getting some very significant results. And it's part of this sort of I think it's part of this new burgeoning spiritual science. Oh, but yeah, but this was... Yeah, yeah, so I, yeah I'll look into that. different yeah. mm. before the, this connection. Okay. And, yeah, and before. But obviously, this, this type of connection, I think it has existed, you, you mentioned it since yeah. many of times. You go back to Indians or Chinese, mm. and this gentleman was talking about pranic, pranic healing. Mm -hmm. if you, I think there are different... Um, um, different masters, different ways of, of speaking the same truth. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. And mm. even, if you want, you go to uh, Ahmed Goswami. Oh, yeah, yeah. physicist, mm, he's a great, great quantum physics, mm. and he does this connection of uh, spirituality, consciousness, mm, and mm. science. Um, so, yeah, I think mm. yeah, thank you. it should thank be you. open. Different, yeah. different 
Yeah, that's how, like I was saying, there's nothing new about this. It's one of the oldest ideas in the history of the human race, and a lot of cultures have interpreted it in different ways with slight variations. Yeah, and, I think you, you find mm. your own uh, path, yeah. your own, what you okay. resonate mm. more with. Yeah, but, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Okay, thanks everybody. If you're interested in finding out more, check out my book, Spiritual Science, and it's been great to encounter uh, you. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.